You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. We've been in a series, if you haven't been here, on prayer. And uh, one of the things we recognize as a church is that prayer is an incredibly powerful uh, gift that has been given us given to us by God to communicate with him, to speak to him, to commune with him. And yet the reality is for most of us, if we're honest, prayer might be one of the most challenging aspects of our walk with God. If we're honest, uh, for some of us, we wish we prayed more. And perhaps we maybe even feel a little bit of shame around our prayer lives. And so we as a church thought, okay, for six weeks, let's lean into this area of prayer. Let's help our our people grow in their understanding of it, but not just their understanding, also how they can practice it in their day-to-day life. I think um, one of the uh, beauties of like Protestant kind of faith uh, is that it's very contemporary, it's very wide open. Uh, But one of the things that we see in in more traditional settings is that they tend to give people more tools uh, to know how to pray, like books of prayers. And there's these traditional prayers and prayers that you memorize. And maybe if you come from an Anglican or a Catholic background, you know what I'm talking about. But for us who are in this world where it's just free form prayer, that can be very challenging for us. And so Today, specifically, we want to lean into what, it, what the prayer of confession is. The prayer of confession. Uh, bringing our, our sin, bringing our wrong, our error before the Lord. Asking for forgiveness. What does that look like? And why do we do that? You see, um, God actually invites us to do this. He does. In 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, If my people who are called by my, day, my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven. I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins. Thanks, Mr. Rob. And restore their land. God is inviting us to come to him, to seek him, to turn to him. And what he is offering us when we do that is that one, he will hear us. He will not turn his face from us. And two, he will forgive us. He will heal us. This is why early Christian communities often practice the confession of sins. Now, interestingly, in the early church, this was often done publicly. Okay, so people would get up in front of the church and confess their sins before the whole congregation. So I'm going to start with the first row over here. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Can you imagine? But you know, this began to change over the years. Uh, We see that, you know, private confession to a priest emerged as a distinct practice within the church, particularly in the medieval period. And this form of confession allowed people to confess their sins privately. Uh, and then the priest would offer them counsel and assign penance and pronounce absolution. During the Protestant Reformation, uh, different approaches of confession emerged amongst the reformers. Martin Luther Uh, he emphasized the importance of individual confession to God. And he actually rejected the sacramental view of confession held by the Roman Catholic Church. Hence why maybe we don't practice that today. John Calvin, other reformers, they also emphasize this as well. 
Um, as an example of this type of prayer in the scriptures, they actually are clearly demonstrated within the Psalms. Uh, particularly, there's, there's Psalms uh, that have shaped our, our language and content for Christian confession. Uh, and uh, these Psalms express themes of contrition, repentance, and seeking forgiveness from God. The one that most clearly comes to mind for most people when they think of a Psalm of repentance is Psalm 51, a Psalm of David. Now, there's a bit of a backstory to this psalm. It actually is in the header of this psalm. Uh, is that this is a psalm that David wrote after he had committed some acts uh, that he deeply regretted. It was springtime. Kings were meant to go out to war. But David decided to hang up his hat and rest back at home in his palace when everyone else, uh, else was out to battle. And one day he, he goes out onto his patio. He's beholding his kingdom, the city of David. I've been there. I've walked through some of the ancient, you know, structures. And David looks out. And what does he see? Bathsheba, ironically, is taking a bath. Uh, and uh, he obviously finds her attractive. He calls for her. He summons her. He abuses and misuses his power. Uh, in order to fulfill his own desires and pleasures. This brings about a child. And uh, because of this, David, in his shame, wants to cover it up. So what does he do? He calls Bathsheba's husband back from war. Uriah, hey, come to me. There's some things I want to talk to you about. He tries to get Uriah home so that he would be with his wife, so the child could be presumed his. But Uriah is an honorable man. He doesn't do it. He keeps sleeping outside. So David, in a moment of what he probably thinks is genius, he thinks, oh, okay, I'm going to send Uriah out to the front of the battle where he will be killed. And if, in fact, he does die. Now, shortly after this, that God sends a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan arrives on David's doorstep and he begins to tell David a parable. A parable about a, a man and his precious little lamb. And uh, perhaps you've, you've heard this story before. Uh, he, he says this, uh, he, he tells this story of, of this man who has this lamb and he lets him sit at his, at his dinner table and, and sleep in his bed and he treats him as if he was this lamb, as if it was his own daughter. And one day a rich man comes along and he had some guests and he wanted uh, to prepare a meal, but he, rather than killing one of his own sheep, he takes this man's little lamb and he makes lamb chops, Right? This is how the story goes. And David is furious. He's fuming. Steam is coming out of his ears. His eyes are red. And he says, Nathan, if a man was to ever do this, you know, there would be consequences. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you as the king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul and you have done this. Now David, after hearing this, he cries out. He confesses before Nathan. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And it was in this moment in his journey that led David to pen Psalm 51. A psalm we're going to read today. And so one of the things we do here at CA Church is we stand when we read God's word. We believe this is some of the most important words you're going to hear. And so let's read uh, Psalm 51. Pull out your Bibles, your phones, or you can read it on the screen. Psalm 51. Let's read together. David, in this moment of conviction, he, he says these words. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness. Even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in secret places. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that the sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. My heart will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise this. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in the burnt offerings offered whole. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. God, I pray today as we read this psalm, this prayer of confession and repentance from David, the Lord, it would give us some handles, some insight as to how we can also be people of confession in our moments of sin and wrong and error. I pray you would teach us today through this word. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a bunch of things found in this psalm that I want you to notice. The posture, the mindset, the beliefs that David holds And that they're actually important when it comes to our confession before God. David's understanding of reality is pivotal to us becoming people of confession. If we share his version of reality, then we too can be people who confess before the living God. The first thing I want to highlight is this, is David's recognition of his sinfulness. Now, this isn't a popular idea in today's world and culture that we are sinful uh, by anyone else's standard other than our own. But David recognizes that he has fallen short of God's glorious standard. And what he says is this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's so, so aware of God's glorious standard and how he has fallen short of that. I like the way that the NLT puts it. He says this, for I recognize 
my rebellion. I recognize it. He says, it haunts me day and night. Later, David acknowledges how deep this sin nature runs. He said, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's stating the reality that This goes all the way back to the womb. This is where Christians develop a theology of original sin that we actually, sin passes from generation to generation. And David has a deep understanding of the complexity and depth of his sin. You'll notice David uses three words for his wrongdoing. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. These three words all point to various types of error and wrong that all of us do. The first is transgression. This is crossing a moral or ethical boundary that you know exists, but do it anyway. But do it anyway. You're going to the mall and uh, that sign on the parking spot clearly says, reserved for parents with small children. And yet all of your children are grown, but they're not that tall. So you pull into the spot anyway, right? This is a transgression. You know there's a boundary and yet you cross it. You know, uh, (laughs) you realize you didn't scan the toilet paper at the bottom of the shopping cart. When you're at the self-checkout and you're at your car, you know you've clearly stolen from thrifties and yet you do not turn back because you don't want to go up that long escalator, right? (laughs) You know, uh, you know that person at work is married and yet you find them attractive and you flirt with them and you hope to get their attention. There's a boundary and yet you're willingly crossing it. You know what your income truly is, but you report less on your taxes. You know this is wrong and yet you do it. You know what the Bible says about what is right and wrong and true and good. And yet you do what is wrong anyway. This is transgression. And it leads to a breach of trust. And David knows he has transgressed. He knew he shouldn't have summoned that woman. He knew he should have not called her to his palace. He knows that he shouldn't have tried to deceive Uriah and then murder him. And yet he did it anyway. The second word that David uses is iniquity. This refers to sins of omission. It's when you you don't realize there's a boundary and you cross it. And this happens to many of us all the time where there's things that we're not even sure that what we're doing is wrong and yet we do it. And so we do it unknowingly and it leads to crooked behavior. You didn't realize that the speed limit changed from 80 to 50 at the end of the Barnett Highway? (laughs) Some of you know, right? And all of a sudden the cop pulls you over and you're like, hey, sorry, officer, why are you pulling out? You've been speeding. I thought the speed limit was 80. No, it's 50. Uh, and, And, you know, they get you every time. Thankfully, I had a golden retriever in the back seat. I rolled down the window. It's very cute. It got me off the ticket, right? <laughs> it's the sin of omission. I didn't realize I crossed a boundary, right? Uh, maybe you're in high school and uh, you've, you've never read the Bible. You don't know right from wrong. You're just following the crowd. You're doing what everyone else does. And yet you are sinning. You are iniquity. 
<clears throat> the last word that David uses, and this is one we're well acquainted with, is sin. Sin simply means to fail or to miss the mark. I remember one time Dave, who's hosting today, uh, was talking about this idea of sin. And uh, he actually, <laughs> I, he got me to hold a dartboard. <laughs> and he, we, we were really into darts at the time. And he would throw the darts at the dartboard. I have no, I actually can't remember how it was connected to this sermon. But he, he, kept, <laughs> he kept hitting the bullseye. I was on stage doing this live at our young adults ministry. But then he grabs one of the darts and he throws it way off course and literally into the wall in the back of the, the church up at Mariner. And this is an example of sin. When we miss the mark, right? When we miss the mark. On Wednesday night, I was playing ball hockey. By the way, it's always a good time. 8 to 10 p.m., okay? Always two goalies, always full, you know, rosters. It's a great time. Uh, buddy on my team gives me just a perfect pass. I lean into it. One of my classic slap shots. I'm not a big man, but I get a, a good slap shot. I miss the net. Devastated, right? It's first to five. It was like 4-3. I could have won the game. I missed the mark. See, this, this image of sin is that even when our, we, we bring our best efforts, it's when we miss the mark. This is when we sin. The, the mark of God's glorious standard. And David in this passage recognizes that he has failed in all of these regards. He has crossed lines he knew existed. He has crossed lines that he didn't realize that he was there. And he has failed to achieve God's ideal for him as a human being. And yet, notice this. He does not come to God with excuses. He says this, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only, God. He says, for I, I, I know I've transgressed. I know I've sinned. See, this heart posture is the posture of a prayer of confession. Just plain acknowledgement. I've sinned. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't make up excuses. He knows that God is a good judge and what in the way that he is judged is right. He knows he has done what is evil in God's sight. And, I, and here's the, the reality is that David's posture and disposition is hard sometimes, isn't it? It's even hard for me to do. I want to explain to God why I did this or that. I want to explain to God, you know, well, this was going on or I was really tired or, and just come before him with my excuses. But here's the thing is that God already knows Everything. We can't fool him. He knows what's going on. And actually, C.S. Lewis, he wrote about this. God knows he has better excuses for us than we have for ourselves. Being an all-knowing being, he can come up with better excuses than we can. And maybe David knows this and he just comes before God. He goes, honestly, God, I'm sorry. I have sinned. I have transgressed. It haunts me day and night. I'm so sorry, Lord. But this aspect of the biblical reality that we are sinners, recognizing that we have sinned, is hard for us to swallow, isn't it? Especially in the West. I think that we do a lot of justifying of our sin more than we do repenting of it. And never have we lived in a time where we're more morally confused about what is right and wrong and good and true. 
and it feels like every other week now the goalpost of morality changes. So we're confused. Some will go so far to say that sin is a man-made construct used to control or coerce people. And yet the Bible is so, so clear. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. Every single one of us. There's not one of us that is blameless before a holy God. And I think if we're honest and we really listen to our conscience, we all know this is true. I actually think the younger we are, the clearer we are about right and wrong. And I think it's as we get older that we begin to convince ourselves otherwise. But this is the beginning and the starting place of a prayer of confession. It's fundamentally to recognize that we are sinners. Simple as that. And in response to that reality to show contrition before God. David says this at the end of his psalm. He says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise these things. This is what God desires from us is that that we would be mournful, contrite, broken up about our wrongdoing and our error. But our pride often gets in the way, doesn't it? Our pride, not wanting to admit that we've fallen short, not wanting to admit that we failed. And man, how often do we experience this in marriage, right? When, when our spouse, you know, calls us out on something and, and our instinct is just to defend ourselves. And maybe you read this word And it convicts you and your instinct is just to defend yourself. See, we've been called to be people who are contrite before the Lord to say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. There's a second aspect of reality that David recognizes. He recognizes God's authority and God's reality, God's existence. God's authority to determine what is right and wrong. God's rightful place as the judge. He pens this, David, through, he, he's praying to God and confessing his existence. He says, have mercy on me, O God. He's directing his prayers to the God of the universe. He's, he recognizes, you're the one I'm accountable to. David, through his prayers, acknowledging God's authority. I've done what is evil in your sight. And he recognizes God as a rightful judge. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He has a right understanding of who God is and the place that he holds in his life. God is not his genie. God is not his, you know, golden ticket. God is good, yes. God is loving, yes. But he is also a righteous judge who can hold David accountable as his creation as one of his people made in his image. David rightly views God in this way. But once again, I think especially for those of us who are younger in this room, maybe we haven't been brought up with a Christian worldview, um, we find this very hard. We find this very hard. Uh, we, we have deemed God dead or worse, inconsequential. We just don't care that he's there. 
We, like our ancestors, have set ourselves up as the ones who get to determine what is good and evil, right and wrong. And many of us, if we're honest, we think of ourselves as more gracious, compassionate, and kind than God is. Deeming him to be incompetent. We've been raised to believe we are little gods who get to shape reality in our vision and who get to determine what is right and good and true by our own standards. But David does not see things this way and the scripture does not see this thing, things this way. God who is the creator of all things through who, in him we have life and breath and who's given us being. He has set up the rules to the game that we are playing. And David recognizes he's accountable to those standards that God has set. This comes out for us in, in many different ways. Here's one of the ways it comes out for me. This desire to want to be a little God of my own world. It's just a silly example, but when I play board games. <laughs> when I play board games, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hyper competitive. Like just very competitive. Hockey is an outlet for me. Someone asked if they could come watch me on a Wednesday. I said, please don't. <laughs> It's just a different level, level of competition. Sometimes when I'm playing board games and I, I just don't like the rules. <laughs> I want to change them. I want to change them to be aligned to my favor, you know? When you roll that seven in Settlers of Catan, I don't, I don't want it to mean that I have to give up half my hand, right? <laughs> no, right? I land on, you know, go to jail and monopoly. No, I don't want to go to jail. I love, I, I so often, I'll even try to like, you know, use the gift of the gab to talk my way out of situations, even in board games. <laughs> and this is a microcosm of the air we breathe as society, believing that we can make the rules for ourselves and restate them as I please. But the biblical reality says this that we actually need to submit to the rules of the game and the game maker. There is a God. He is sovereign and he is the ultimate judge. He gets to determine what is good and right and true even if we disagree with him. But man, it's hard to submit to that sometimes, isn't it? But when we pray and especially when we confess, it's this recognition of these realities. God, I've sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. I've sinned against you and you alone. I'm accountable to you. So we don't just repent about that which we feel like repenting for. We repent for the things and we say sorry for the things that he has deemed wrong. There's a third element that comes out in this psalm though that David has this understanding. He has an understanding due to his sin nature and due to the ways in which he has fallen short. He recognizes his need for rescue. He recognizes his need for rescue. So talking about uh, rescue, really interestingly, my Facebook algorithm lately has uh, began to realize I'm really into animal rescue videos. <laughs> so all I see all the time now is just reels of animal rescue videos. 
And it knows I like them because I'll watch them to the end. And so it just keeps giving me more, more animal rescue. You know, whether it's a bear that was swimming and it's got a jar stuck on its head or there's some fish in some low tide pool and some guy who's saving them, bringing them back to the ocean or a squirrel that was cut, like, you know, caught in wire and then becomes some guy's pet. Uh, (laughs) Did you guys see on I Love Port Moody group? which is misnamed, by the way. That should not be called the I Love Port Moody Group. But uh, it's, uh, I love to complain about Port Moody Group. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but I was on there the other day, and uh, <laughs> they were talking about some goose, like some Canadian goose that was walking on Guilford here, and someone rescued him. And somebody asked, like, did the goose fight back when you're trying to rescue? And he said, no, it kind of just, like, submitted, you know, to, to, my, to my rescue. And I was thinking about that story and, and for some reason these rescue videos came to my mind and God kind of spoke to me about it. He's like, Cam, you know, the re- like, you need rescue too. You need rescue. You're like those animals. You're entangled in sin. You're caught. You're stuck. You, you need my rescue. You're never too far gone for my rescue. And we, kind of like that goose, <laughs> the, the response is not fighting. And oftentimes the animals, when they're trying to rescue them, they're like, they start to fight back, right? right? They're like, they're coming at the person. But there's a, a point when they often will just submit to the, to the rescuer and allow them to cut them free or set them free from the trap. And God was speaking to me about this. Cam, you need to submit to my rescue. There's more I have for you. There's more I want to do for you. There's more things I want to set you free from. David has this understanding of God, that God is his rescuer, that he is in need of rescue. And we see it come out. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Deliver me. Restore me. Cleanse me. Do not cast me away. God, create in me a clean heart. God, restore in me the joy of your salvation. God, would you, would you be my savior? He, he realizes his deep need for rescue. And for you and I, as we come before God in confession, it's this deep recognition of our need for rescue. And I think many of us have forgotten it. Have forgotten that we, we desperately actually need the saving work of Jesus in our lives. We need God to come to our rescue that we cannot make it on our own. You know, sin is kind of like quicksand. The more that you struggle and try and get yourself out on it, the more you get stuck in it. It requires someone else to come along to rescue us, to enter into that quicksand to save us. I remember the story of uh, these two boys they were at the Mississippi River. They were hopping sandbag to sandbag to sandbag. And in flood season, the waters will come up and the, the sand sometimes will begin to mix with the water and create quicksand. And there was the younger brother jumped in and he got stuck. And he struggled and struggled and struggled and he couldn't get out. And the older brother decided what to do. He's crying out for help, but no one was coming. The older brother enters into the quicksand and allows his brother to stand on his shoulders so that he would not sink. And he gave his life to rescue his younger brother. It's a true story. 
fire department comes and they save this young man. It was all because his older brother gave his life to rescue him. See, this is our reality. We're stuck, my friends. But confession and the prayer of confession is the opportunity for us to step into freedom and restoration and newness, to be made white as snow, to be made clean by the Savior. But it requires for us to recognize our sin, to have contrite hearts, to recognize God as our authority, and to know and believe that we genuinely need rescue and just to submit to our rescuer, to allow him, allow him to forgive us, to stop striving and trying to do it on our own. Some of you are caught up in religious games and you're tired, you're exhausted. And the hope of the gospel is that you no longer need to struggle, you just need to pray. God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for the things I've done. Oh, would you restore me? Would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? And in that moment, David knows. He knows who his God is. And this is why he goes to him. And maybe for some of you, the the reason why you don't go to God in confession is because you don't know who he is. But David knows who he is. He knows that his God is merciful. He knows that his God is kind. He knows that his God is loving. He knows his God is, is all loving and compassionate and cares deeply for him. And so he goes to him in his moment of need because he knows what he will receive is not a slap. He knows what he will not receive is not condemnation. He knows he will receive the love, the mercy, the kindness, the goodness of God. And this is why we go before God in confession. This is why we come before him in just honest vulnerability about our our shortcomings. Because we know who God is and we know that he is loving and compassionate. David knew God was who he said he was. He had come through so many times for him before and for his ancestors. Dane Ortland, he speaks about the mercy of God this way. I love what he says. He says that God is rich in mercy means that the regions of your deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means that the things that make you cringe most make him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, and magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him. But the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurried, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished our view of his mercy-rich heart had been. This is how merciful our God is. This is why David comes to him and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, your covenantal love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. I know who you are, God. And so I come to you. 
And we need to keep this reality in the front of our minds when we think of prayer of confession. God is merciful. Some of you have conflated how your father would have reacted when you confessed with how our father in heaven reacts. But he is not like our earthly fathers, some of our earthly fathers. He is so kind and so gentle and so compassionate. If you hear a word of rebuke and a word of condemnation, that is not the Lord. That is either your flesh or the enemy. Our God speaks words of grace and truth and peace and kindness. We can know this to be true in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Here is a promise for us to hold on to. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise. Dane Ortland again, he says, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity. That we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. And this is the power of the prayer of confession. It is through confession. It's in our need that God declares us right with him once again. Not through religion, religious games, but just through honesty and confession coming before him. Confession is therefore not a punishment to us for our sin, where we have to relive our brokenness, but it is actually a gift where we get to come before an all-knowing and yet all-loving God and bring before him our failures and mistakes and receive not a talking to, not a cuff upside the head, not even hell, but we get mercy, grace, kindness, and forgiveness. This is what God wants to do for you today. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash rail city to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the rail city campus of CA church.